0: Our reading today is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. This is a conflict passage between Jesus and a group of people known as the Sadducees. So let me introduce just a little bit about the background of this. Often we hear of two different groups, the Pharisees, which we hear an awful lot about in the New Testament. They're mentioned quite a bit. And the Sadducees, which only are mentioned 14 times in all of the Gospels. These two groups in general had some pretty big differences. The biggest difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a question of authority. What part of the Bible did they hold up as the most authoritative? The Sadducees in general limited themselves only to the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah or the teaching, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To them, when you talked about the Bible, that was, that's what they meant. For the Pharisees, on the other hand, of course they valued the first five books of the Bible, but they also valued the oral tradition that grew out of all that law-giving in the first part of the Bible. Plus the Pharisees also valued the writings, which were the Psalms and the Proverbs, and the history books. And also the Pharisees valued the prophets. And we love love the prophets uh, here. We love them. And so there was a disconnect between these two groups about what was authoritative. In particular, one of the biggest issues that the Sadducees had with the Pharisees was around the question of the resurrection. As it turns out, the first five books of the Bible really don't talk about the resurrection all that much. If they do, they do it in sort of an oblique way, and we'll see how they do later on in our passage today. So as a rule, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They just didn't. They thought that when a person died, their body went into the dust and became just part of the earth. We believe that. They thought that the soul that indwelled the body, as they understood it, disappeared into nothingness. Just poof, like a puff of smoke and dissipates and and was gone. So for the Sadducees, that was it. Uh, Better live your life well because when it's over, it's all done. So there was no punishment in the afterlife or no reward in the afterlife. It just was over, and the job for the Sadducees was to live according to the law as best they could in this lifetime, and praise God, and um, do, do as well as they could. The Pharisees, on the other hand, and we often think of the Pharisees negatively, but they were the heroes of the people. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, particularly because they valued the prophets. And, For example, in Daniel chapter 12 of the Old Testament, the resurrection is very, very clearly taught and identified as a teaching. So, the Pharisees believed in life after death. Uh, It wasn't always that the Pharisees were negative uh, in the the New Testament times. They, They actually believed in some things that were quite right. So, Jesus, and we should understand this, Jesus, at least theologically when it came to authority of the Old Testament, was far more on the side of the Pharisees than he was on the side of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees knew this. And so, in our reading today, we have a challenge to Jesus about the resurrection. And it comes in the form of a question, kind of an absurd question, as you'll see. A question about what does marriage look like in the resurrection? Which, when you think about it for a while, you realize that is an interesting question. What is marriage like in the resurrection? Well, we're going to find out today. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote that if you ask a nonsense question about God, that doesn't make God nonsense. In fact, quite the opposite. His example of this is that very famous question that you've probably heard from a skeptic. Is God so powerful that he could make a rock so big that even he couldn't move it? Have you all heard that question before? To C.S. Lewis, that was a nonsense question. And he says, when you ask a nonsense question about God, it doesn't make God nonsense. It makes you nonsense. That it just bounces off God. It's kind of like, you know, I'm rubber and you're glue. It bounces off me and sticks to you from the childhood days. And by the way, do you all know if God is so powerful that he could make a rock so big that he couldn't move it himself? Who says yes? This is audience participation. Who says yes? Who says no? Who says that's nonsense so I don't have to answer it? Okay. You know what, actually, though? The answer to that question is yes. It is yes. Insofar as this, and we'll set this aside after I'm done. God has the unique ability to limit his own power. He does this in the incarnation when he enters the world in flesh and experiences all things that human beings do, including death. So God is actually able, by his power, to limit his own power. Take that, put it in a box, and you know we can talk about it some other day. So the answer to that is yes. But generally speaking, when you ask nonsense about God, You become nonsense. That's what's happening here with these Sadducees. They have a juicy morsel that they're going to serve up to Jesus and make him look silly, and it's about the resurrection. They love the Old Testament. They love the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, there's a law. The law goes like this. If a man marries a woman, they're supposed to have children to carry on the man's family name and to inherit all of his property. If, however, he dies before they can have any children... His closest living male relative, so it would be his brother if he had brothers, is required by law. This is called the Levirate Law of Marriage. Is required by law to marry his widow and have a family with her. And all the children that are born of that marriage are actually the heirs of the dead man. They inherit his name and his land and so on. And by that way, a, a person's heritage is protected. It's all about protection. It's a, it's a law of protection. This law we see actually in effect in the Old Testament in at least two places. The first is the story of Judah and Tamar, which uh, is a story really that's more about greed than it is anything else. It's an interesting story. It's one worth looking up. And the other is the story about Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is the levir or the, the kinsman redeemer for, for Ruth. So that plays out. Now, so the Pharisees or the pardon me, the Sadducees, I may say Pharisee from time to time when I mean Sadducee. If I say, if I do that, just go with it, all right, because I get confused. The Sadducees came to Jesus and they quote this Old Testament law, but they put it into this absurd set of parameters. They're seven brothers. Oh, wow. And the first one marries this woman and he dies childless. So his, his next younger brother does what every young, young good brother should do. He marries her and tries to start a family with her so those children can carry on his name. But he dies before they can have children. And then the third and then the fourth. And then by the fifth or the sixth, they're thinking, this is an un, really an unlucky family. Everyone who marries her dies. I think we should move. But nonetheless, the sixth and the, finally the seventh marry her and they all die. Without any children. And then she dies. And now for the fun part, for them at least. Jesus, in this resurrection that you believe in, they're all up there in heaven. Whose wife will she be? This could be really awkward. Is she going to be married to the first brother, her first husband? Is she going to be married to the last one, the one she was most recently married to? Is she going to be married to the one she loved the most? Wouldn't that be romantic? You know, Or is she going to be married to all of them? And that would be really embarrassing to them because back then they they didn't have a problem with the idea of a man having more than one wife, polygamy. They really didn't like the idea of a woman having more than one husband. It's called polyandry. They didn't like that idea. What would would the resurrection? Now, in in a way, they're trying to say that the resurrection is absurd or nonsense because they were able to create this nonsensical test case for the resurrection, and uh, as we'll see, as, and as C.S. Lewis says, it just makes them nonsense. Here's what Jesus does. He starts to answer their question. He's, he's not afraid of this challenge at all. He's ready to mix it up and to use it as an opportunity to teach both about marriage and about the resurrection. And, that's what, he's, and, and what he says, he attacks first, is their assumption Inside of their story is an assumption. And you know what happens when you assume, don't you? You know. I think some of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in life are making assumptions without having asked enough questions first or about thinking about it through enough. The biggest assumption that the Sadducees make in this case is that not only that there's resurrection, but that in heaven or in the resurrection, people will be married. And if people are to be married in the resurrection whose wife will this woman be? Jesus attacks. The first th- he does two things. The first thing he does is he deals with their assumption, which is false. And this is what he says. Look at verse 34. He said, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, the next age, and in the resurrection from the dead, will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So, There's no marriage in heaven. That woman will not be married to any of those men at all. And nobody's going to be married in heaven. He goes on, They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. I have to admit here that this is a passage of Scripture that I haven't always liked. I'm a little bit of a romantic at heart sometimes. And I like the idea of staying married to Krista in heaven. It would be nice. Um, Now, it could be good news to some of you. I'm not going to look at anyone in particular (laughs) that you will not be married for eternity to the person you're married to now. But there's no marriage in heaven. And that's not very romantic, is it? It's just not. It's different. It's different from this world. We have to now look at what Jesus says about marriage and what the Bible says about marriage to make a little more sense of this. God actually does care about romance. He cares about passion. If you want a fun thing to do for a date night, read the Song of Songs. It'll make you blush a little bit. God loves romance. God loves falling in love. God loves passion. God designed physical intimacy to be a wonderful, life-giving thing. In the tradition, uh, even in the Jewish tradition, the tradition around the Sabbath, originally was that it would be life-giving, so that you rest from your work, and a couple would rest from their work on that day, and enjoy each other relationally, and then they would set aside time to enjoy each other physically. That's part of the Jewish tradition of the Sabbath. It's beautiful. It's life-affirming, life-celebrating thing to do. So God cares about romance. God cares about passion and intimacy. But if you look at the original design for marriage, you have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And very quickly, here's what it is. Adam is in the garden. He's named all the animals. All the animals have companions, but Adam has none. And it says, For Adam there was not to be found a suitable helper. Now, that word helper is the Hebrew word etzed. And that word, if you look at it too much as helper, which certainly is what it meant, you could start to imagine that the woman Eve came into the garden to be somewhat subservient to Adam, just to to service his needs as as a helper. But in actuality, that word could also be translated as strength. Eve was Adam's strength. And if you have a healthy marriage... You know that your spouse can be your strength when you're not strong. Even God is referred to as an eight said in some places in the Bible. In Psalm 54, it said, the Lord is my help. But you could also translate that as the Lord is my strength. God himself is an eight said to the people that he created. So I wouldn't read in there that Eve being in the garden with Adam as his helper is in any way subservient other than that she became his companion that they could live together in love and be both a strength and help to him. Here's a mystery that's very interesting. In the garden, there's no record of Adam and Eve starting a family. It's just not there. We'll find out more. They fall, they sin against God, and they're cast out of the garden, and some curses come their way about the difficulty of life, that life is going to be hard, that their lifespan is going to be limited, and one of the first things that they do when they're outside of the garden is they start having a family. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And there, outside the, the garden, marriage begins to shape, change its shape somewhat in God's design. Now marriage, while it's still about help and companionship, and it, it was always about passion and love, now marriage is about protection from death. Death is coming, and the only way to get around death for the human race is to have offspring. They're going to die. If they had both died without having children, God's experiment in humanity would have been a very short one. God gave them the ability to have children. They had children. The children live on after them. And so child having children is our protection of sorts against death. The other thing is that the world became a very dangerous and sinful place, as we understand. The very first death in the Bible, Abel, wasn't through disease or old age or an accident like falling off a cliff. The very first death in the Bible was also the very first murder in the Bible. That's how the first person to die in the world died. Murder, violence. So marriage also became a refuge of safety from the evilness of the world. And that's a very good Christian view of marriage too, is that it is a safe place from the dangers and evils of the world. I think of marriage as this beautiful but sturdy house on top of a cliff that's being battered at all times by waves and storms at the seaside. And inside, a couple huddles together in warmth and safety. That's the image of marriage. So now Jesus says this. In this age, people are married And are given in marriage. It's quite obvious. They get married for all these reasons in this age. For love, for companionship, for protection, for having children. That's why they get married. But those who are worthy to live in the age to come and of the resurrection will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And the difference is the difference between this age and that age. That Greek word for age there is ion. It's where we get our word eon. The Christian view of time is that there's two ages. One age that began with the creation of the world and ends when Jesus comes back, and the second one that ends at that moment and goes on for eternity. The Greek view, in contradiction to this, was that there were age after age after age that repeated, and the world was created and destroyed anew over and over again. It sounds an awful lot like some of the other religions that are still current in our world. But for the Christian, in the Christian worldview, two ages. This age, in this age, people are married. In that age, people are not married. And why? Because that age is different from this age. That's why there's no marriage there. Here's some of the differences. Companionship. All the reasons why you need marriage in this age, all the needs for marriage in this age, don't exist in that age. He even goes on to explicitly say that. He says, people in that age can no longer die. Even if you wanted to die, I don't think you could. You're not able to die. And so you don't need the protection that marriage brings. People in that age will, won't need children because you'll all be children. You'll be children of God and children of the resurrection. That's what he says. And he says people in that age will be like the angels. And here we have to kind of bracket something, what he's not saying. He's not saying that we will become angels in the resurrection. I think some people think that. They think that when you go to heaven, you grow a pair of wings on your back and you get this nice white robe and you become some of this sort of uh, strangely genderless person that kind of flies around and sings in a high voice. That's not what it says at all. It says you will become like the angels in this respect. Like the angels, you will never experience death. You will be immortal. And finally, we don't need the protection that marriage gives us in heaven because heaven is a safe place. Nothing will harm you in heaven. The evil one will not be prowling around like like a lion looking for something to devour because the evil one will not be present in heaven. It'll be safe. In Isaiah chapter 11 Isaiah talks about the future kingdom, likens it to a mountain. And it says there, the Lord says, Nobody will harm or destroy on all my holy mountain. Heaven is a safe place. So, to answer their question, there's no need for marriage in heaven. Set aside all the romantic or non-romantic sides of that. Heaven is so much better than here that the reasons for marriage existing on earth don't exist there. So that woman won't be married to the first husband or the last or to all seven of them or none of them. And they won't be married to anyone else. That's the first thing that Jesus does, is he deals with their assumption about heaven. The second thing he does is he goes to the source, the root of authority. That's really the question that's going on here. They believe in the first five books of the Bible. They love Deuteronomy 25. So Jesus is going to quote to them from an even earlier book in the first five books. He's going to quote to them from Exodus because he knows they love Exodus too. And he tells them this story. He says, do you remember when Moses met God in the burning bush? Don't you love that story? He says to them. And they're like, yeah, we love that story. Do you remember how God introduced himself to Moses? God calls himself I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, because God introduces himself that way, it proves that death is not the end. And that makes sense. He says, God is the God of the living. To all things, uh, he is alive. For to him, all are alive. And this is just logic. He's using logic. If, somebody, if Abraham died and his atoms went into the earth and disappeared and his soul vanished into nothingness, God could not be his God anymore. God can't be God to a nothing. God doesn't exist in relationship to nothingness. God exists in, in relationship to things that are. That's one of the fundamental natures of God is that he's rooted and anchored in reality because he created it himself. So when God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they had a human death, are alive in God's presence in some way right now. And so that, even from their book, the part of the book that they like the best, Jesus was able to prove that the resurrection was real. And so... Some of them who were listening said, well well done, Jesus, and nobody else bothered uh, him with any of these silly questions anymore. I want to say two things about this. First, that this is such good news. It was an opportunity for Jesus to teach about the resurrection. We have it from Jesus himself that the resurrection is real. And it makes the story of his own resurrection all the more real. And it means that there's only two ages. There's the age that you're in, and you're going to die. You're going to be in that next age, and that's going to last forever. The relationships that you're going to have there, both with other people and with God, I believe are going to surpass the value and intensity and fulfillment of even the most committed and loving and passionate marriage that you've ever seen on this earth. I think that's the truth. I think when we're in heaven with God and with each other, we won't worry about being married to any one particular person. We'll just be in God's presence, and that will fill us in more ways than we can even imagine now. We're not able to comprehend it. And that resurrection is a good thing. It's a good hope for us. When I was back in Minnesota earlier this week, uh, I sat at a table for a lot of the week with another pastor who was a pastor of a Reformed church in Boise, Idaho. He's in a different denomination than us. And at the end of the, our time together, he came up to me and he said, and I think we were thinking the same thing. He said, You know, I, I'm not sure we're going to see each other again. You know, there's, there's not, I don't go to Boise a lot. Uh, he's in a different denomination, so I won't see him at any more future denominational meetings of our denomination. I'm not going to switch to his denomination. We're, we got close, but not close enough to, like, visit each other. Um, it's one of those in-between things. He's, in, he's more than an acquaintance now, but he's not quite a lifelong friend. And we both kind of picked up on that. It was nice. And he said this. He said, I probably may not see you, but we'll see you up there someday. And I was thinking the same thing. It's true. I'll see him again. That's great news. I'll see my father again. I lost him when I was 20 years old. We just had All Saints Day. It's the time to remember those in our lives who have gone on before us. And there's many in this room who have lost somebody special. Jesus says, those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they'll be there. They're considered worthy of the resurrection because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for them to save them and claim them as his own so that they could then truly become God's children and the resurrection. So that's good news. It's always worth reminding ourselves. And this is the last thing. God's design for marriage in this age is that it would be a safe place, a place of refuge from the world. If your marriage is a safe place, is a refuge, I'm very happy for you. However, if you know that your marriage is not a safe place right now or not a refuge from the world or if you sense that it's tending in that direction, your pastors are willing to help you. We're here for you. In confidence, confidentiality, we'll sit down with you. And we know that if you start early enough, it's very possible that even a marriage and be resurrected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your beautiful design for marriage in this world. We thank you for the life that awaits us in the next age. Bless us now as we live into the reality of our hope of the resurrection in you. In Jesus' name, Amen.